Hello and welcome. This is the Carbon Watchdog podcast. Hi, I'm, I'm Adam Hardy and this is the Carbon Watchdog podcast and I have got Danny Badger with me from Boston in America. Uh, Danny has um, He's a fishery scientist and uh, educator. He's been volunteering on the, on the governing council for an organization called Nochi, Nochi, the Italian pasta, but actually it's, um, so N-N-O-C-I, N-N-O-C-C-I, and uh, he is a, um, he's got an MSc in uh, fishery science, sorry, BSc in fishery science, MSc in natural, sorry, say that again? Natural resources. Natural resources. Natural resources management. It the the title was just natural resources, but in effect, it was management assessment. All of it. The above. Okay. Good one. Well, there you go. You, <laughs> we've already said our hellos, but uh, anyway, hello, Danny. Hi. Hello, hello. Good to have you on the podcast. Fantastic. So, to be here. Thank you. Yeah, and you've got a great background there. Do you want to just shift your head, lean your head slightly? That is a fantastic deep I would say, squid. Uh, a, a nice big octopus that would be the um, very best wedding gift one could get, as right. far as I'm concerned. I think others in my family might think otherwise, but I love it. Okay, so that's on the that's on the wall behind you. That is pretty fantastic. I love the blue and the gold of the octopus. It yeah, pretty it, good. it's striking. It's it's a good one. And the people listening in won't be able to see it, but you should be able to visualize that. Like dark yeah, just blue, imagine, you know, deep sea, panel, big octopus descending upon you. <laughs> so we uh, we met last week at uh, London Green Drinks, and we were just chatting about stuff. And uh, I found out that you are a uh, you've been you have worked up until COVID nineteen struck at mm. the. Uh, the New England Aquarium in Boston. And I found out that you do know a lot about corals, which are my favorite species. Well, actually they're a class. No, are they a family? They're a, a There's a lot of it. Animal, a class of tiny animals that build these fantastic reefs, like Great Barrier Reef right. and everything. And you refused to do a podcast on coral reefs. You ducked out of that one. You said you weren't, you weren't in the know enough. You weren't. You weren't in the know enough about corals to be able to talk about them for an hour or so. But uh, well, I could talk about them, but I can't claim to be the expert on them. <laughs> but that's okay because there is an awful lot of stuff to talk about otherwise. And part of the part of what's going on in the um, in the aquariums and the presumably all sorts of museums and galleries where the public go is the scientists like yourself, the educators in there who get to show people what's what, have the opportunity or maybe even the necessity to talk about climate change and how it is affecting the whatever it is behind the, behind the glass or in the, uh, on the wall that you're looking at. For instance, well, if it was a, if it was a coral aquarium, then there would be an absolute necessity to say, well, these ones here are living very happily in their coral in their coral aquarium in perfect conditions but out there in the wild it gets up to 30 31 32 degrees and the the heat 
of the ocean, of the heat of the sea will bleach the corals. And if that happens too much, it will kill the corals and that'll be it. And it's hard to, I guess it's hard to talk about that and how threatened these things are without mentioning climate change and global warming. And there you immediately get into, well, I assume in America, it's going to be pretty much the same as here. There's a, there's a large contingent of people who just don't want to know. Um, I assume that what would happen is the, is the adults at least would go, okay, next exhibit and walk on, right? And that case, or they would be engaged and they would be like, ah, oh, right. that is shocking or whatever. Right. It's all about how you frame it. It's all about how you approach the conversation. Um, and there are times that, yeah, you're going to get somebody who is dismissive, um, but I have found the most valuable way to, to, to reach anybody is not to preach at them, but really to start building that rapport of, we're not just looking at these animals that are in this tank that might represent the ocean. Um, we're 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 showcasing how we are all connected and one of the things i often think about when they're looking through the class my job might be to then show the reflection back to the human of like you are part of the system and one of our challenges within aquarias and um and zoos and museums is bringing to life what is on exhibit and I've often seen my career as a bridge, um, just to, to kind of bridge together the, the divide that we humans have created between our, our civilized world and the natural world. And the more we create that divide, the more imperiled we become. Okay, so you're basically saying that, that I, as a visitor, looking at this, at this tank of whatever it is, that is um, that I'm a part of I'm a part of the same world that they're a part of. Yeah. And that sounds like something that you're going to, okay, that sounds like something that right there, technically in the conversation, you're going to have to introduce, you're going to have to go, right, now I'm going to say something and uh, going to get a reaction. Or do you always bide your time and wait for the perfect moment when they'll say something and you'll go, yes. <laughs> no, I, 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 I try to steer the conversation and I don't try to be just reactive, but I also find that if you go into a conversation with a preordained um, script, there is a danger of being too married to that script and not allowing yourself to engage with the human in front of you as a human. And okay. if you, if you make yourself into this other existence of, I'm a scientist or I'm a, I'm a, I'm an educator. Therefore I know better than you. You're, you're going to get nowhere. And I think that's, that's a, that's a reality that we've seen within education. We've seen within resource management, fisheries management. Uh, I know in this country, our biggest, some of our biggest failures have been when researchers or managers have come to industry to fishers to, and say, Oh, I know how to do this better than you do. And I'm not going to even incorporate what your knowledge is or what your lived experience is. Um, and when we've had our best successes has been scientists, industry, other stakeholders get together and actually work as a 
team towards a common value. And so that's where we really start off our conversations when we're framing, when we're using um, what Noki focuses on, the, the National Network for Ocean and Climate Change Interpretation, is you start off these conversations by really diving into what is a shared value. And so there's been some research we've done on what values resonate with, um, admittedly this, this research has been focused on the US, so what values tend to be pervasive regardless of political stripes um, or lived experiences and things like the idea of responsible management is something that everyone shares. What we're responsible for might might be changed based on your lived experience but if you can focus on i want we we have a responsibility to manage our world then you can start steering the conversation into a better um okay. direction so essentially you have a you have a job or rather or rather the the people out the employees of the aquarium or the zoo or or wherever they have their job is to is to go there um and be accessible for the visitors mm -hmm. so so the zoo or the aquarium doesn't just say you well, go out there and, and talk to them ask them whether they've had a nice day presumably they say would well, you go out there and go out there and do what go out there and spread what message what message do they want to i mean right. it, could, it could be just really you know just make sure you get the donation for the museum okay or whatever it is <laughs> or or actually has it got the um, you know when you have the opportunity then put in like points a b or c or what? We are mission driven. So we are the New England Aquarium. Their their mission, in essence, is to pr protect the blue planet. Um, and so that how we engage our audience is going to depend on who our audience is. Um, the, those of us who were working with visitors, or I ran some um, marine science courses where I had students come to us and stay with me for a while, um, and and be quite engaged in extensive learning. Um, in those cases, we do have this greater ideal of, we don't want them to just enjoy their time, but we do want them to enjoy their time. Right. We want them, we want, we need them to have positive associations with the ocean, but we also need them to understand that there is, they have a responsibility, they have a role to play in the conservation and, and continuation of that ocean. And then you being able to have that ocean as part of our working world, um, a resource that we are, we're part of the food web that, that. To try to, you try to bring across the sense that they, that they should feel some sense of stewardship for it. Absolutely, perfect, yeah. Yeah. And how successful do you think that is on a, on a case by case basis when you've got, say you go out on the floor in the aquarium and you, talk to 10 people how many of them are going to pick up a message from you that it's going to be i assume and i assume with kids you yeah. don't even have to make an effort it, they'll just do it for you right they'll just steer the yeah kids make things so much easier um most adults so the new england aquarium was one of the top places for a first date in the city usually when you're on a first date really? you don't need, want to go into deep philosophical oh, Actually, some of us do, but um, <laughs> it may not be the best uh, conversation piece or best situation to thrust your first date into a situation where you have to talk about contentious issues. But we 
it's hard to put a number on, on how many out of 10. Um, the truth be told, most of the people or a large percentage of people who come to uh, cultural institutions are already in a mindset of wanting to learn something. Okay. And they tend to be relatively receptive. Occasionally you do find somebody who wants to just butt heads. Um, uh-huh. And so there, there's a skill in learning when, okay, maybe I'm just gonna focus on how pretty this animal is. Maybe I'm going to focus on how, look how much fun your kid is having. Um, yeah. I, had a, I had a really, I think one of my most telling moments, well, some people in, our, in this field really like to find the, the conversations that are gonna be, they're gonna have a lot of synergy with. Um, so they're looking for audience members who are already on board. Um, okay. One of my angles is well, just just for self fulfillment for themselves, right? Right, right. Because it, it is working in this field is depressing. It's really hard because we see some some really incredibly scary results of of our um, species level ignorance and government level ignorance. Um, right. But and and when you feel like all the world's against us and we're the only ones who know understand what's going on. Yeah. That puts you in a bad spot, both mentally, it also puts you in a bad spot in, in terms of being able to build the collaboration you need to build to actually get. Okay, so you're saying there is a, so you're saying that that's like, aside from climate change, just in terms of our human understanding of the marine ecosystem and the way it works and the way that we should manage it and steward it better, yes. there's just a massive gulf there between the reality of what we do and what we should be doing. There can be, absolutely. And, and there's, but I also really like to stress those moments of success, those areas where we've really seen some incredible progress. Uh, and one of the things that we try to do in, in Noki is, you know, you start off with these values, these ideas, you know, make sure you're, you're kind of centering this conversation around a, a shared value. Right. Ultimately, you need to kind of cre- connect the dots, um, show the causal chain of, well, you know, if, it, as we burn fossil fuels like coal, oil, and natural gas, it contributes to this, this um, blanket around the earth, this carbon dioxide blanket um, that is causing some rampant um, growth of CO2 and rampant growth of, um, global, of global temperatures. And yeah. then we have to create this causal chain of how that connects all the way to this animal that we're looking at, and also to our actions impacting that animal. Uh-huh. So you try to create this, this full circle effect. Um, and there was a, a really incredible study um, in the around 2006 or so in this country where they, um, um, uh, a group called Pew uh, looked into- uh, Pew Research Institute, right. I think I've yeah. heard of them. Yeah. yeah. Um, they looked into the, it was dubbed the Six Americas study. They looked into where Americans lay within the realm of climate change is happening and I know something, it's, it's, it's human cause and we have to do something about it all the way to we, it's not happening or it's, it, there's no way that humans could, could be impacting it and yeah. screw you for even talking about it. Um, and so they're trying to get a sense of where Americans um, really lay within this this spectrum, and they found that we tend to fall into six camps running that whole gamut. Um, yeah. 
most people are in the middle, which means most people are accessible. Only 6% of Americans were in the camp of, I know it's not happening and we can't do anything about it, which means 94% of, of, of people in this country are willing to at least consider that humans have a responsibility to manage their behavior within this world because it's impacting our existence in this world and the existence of other animals throughout our ecosystems. Yeah, okay. It does. Yeah, there's and uh, although it's been although it's been uh you could say it's been a long time coming, it hasn't in terms of cultural change, it hasn't been very long at all. That we're now at the point where it looks like, you know, in November of in, in the US elections, I'll find out if I'm right or not, but it looks like there is now a democratic majority who is prepared who's prepared to to vote about these big issues about climate change and i don't think trump is just going to lose because of climate change but i think that will be a major uh, a major contribution to it i hope so i hope that that really becomes the case there's 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 an issue of people who are environmentally minded who tend not to vote which is one of our biggest challenges in this country and it's one of the biggest reasons, in my opinion, why we are so lagging in our collective government level response. Well, because of the people who don't vote. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's one of the big things, you know, we, we in, in Noki, we're really trying to focus on, there's individual actions you can do, obviously, but the biggest, goal is creating these these community level these society level changes yeah. that have to happen and engaging every single citizen that we can to get involved with those large scale solutions um, because well, without those large scale solutions we're screwed so you mean that basically when you when i see all of these adverts and these and these uh the slogans and the people people pushing their pushing for the uh, climate change solutions, they're, all, they're always saying, make sure you vote for a, for a party that will take climate change action. And I think, yeah, well, everything is so polarized that, that saying just go out and vote is not gonna make any difference because no. even if people do believe in climate change, if you're a Republican, you're still not gonna vote for Biden. No. And um, so what they're aiming at is they're aiming at people who just wouldn't normally vote. I didn't, I didn't realize that. I suppose that's a big issue. Although over, over here in the UK and in a lot of European countries and Australia, places like that, there's still only 40 to 50% um, democratic participation. It's really crap. You know, there's yeah. so many people who just can't get out of the, can't get out of bed in time. Or I don't know what it is. Right. It's, it's interesting. We are, um, so I, I join you for the London Green Drinks for um, Boston Green Drinks at the end of, of September, we're having, um, we're having someone come from the Environmental Voters Project and their whole angle is getting people who would vote in, with an environmental forward mindset to vote because so few of us do. Um, that's their whole angle and they're gonna be sharing a little bit more about how they, how they approach that. I'm really excited to see how that um, conversation plays out. Um, but it, it's, it's one spot. I also think, you know, 
the whole, one of our challenges is that mindset that, well, because I'm a Republican, I can't vote for Biden, even if I agree with that we need to do something about climate change. Voting is, is, is imperative. We have to do that. We have to hold our, our leaders accountable. Um, but we also need to get engaged with actions beyond just the ballot box, um, getting our communities to come together because society exists between, in, between votes all the time. And um, we can in, influence the big players in our communities to an incredible degree. And, and even, you know, I've seen, I've seen middle schoolers who have motivated. Um, when you say the, sorry, when you say the big players, you mean who? You mean corporations or you mean the politicians or both? Corporations, um, um, whole school-wide systems, um, anything that's re really engaging a large number of people so that if you can change that group's activity, you can have a, a pretty substantial impact on um, uh, on on emissions and other environmental issues. So, yeah, I'm thinking of so getting schools, involved yeah. with with your community. So, cities um, on on the city level, the town level, uh, on the county level, the state level. Um, right, cities can have. Yeah, we we have that in the UK with university yeah. uh, with with um city of london i'm uh, sorry not the city of london that's just a financial district i mean london and the mayor of london they that is a pretty uh pretty major force mm -hmm. and london is just so big so they they can do a lot if they want yeah. to put them right and think even even the smaller municipalities if you if if 10 small small towns get together and collaborate on hey in our region we're going to make this we're all part of the same watershed. Maybe we will we'll say, as this part of our watershed, we're going to institute a, an array of, of policies that are climate forward. And right. we're gonna put that as, you know, our citizens are demanding this. Our citizens are showing up for um, town hall meetings. They're, they're voicing their concerns and they're, they're engaging with solutions. That is what's- so, Sorry, what sort of concerns what sort of concerns do you typically think they'll be talking about? Now, some of it would be where our energy is coming from. Some of it will be, you know, um, cement production is one of the biggest contributors to climate change. Um, so right. some of it's going to be engaging with researchers to find out how do we, yeah. how do we build with better materials and how do we source, if we're going to build, a variety of buildings as we build up our communities. Do we intentionally spend an extra 5% in order to be able to, to source from products that will ultimately save us a lot more money because we don't have to um, deal with the implications of climate change as much as we would if we don't start making these collective actions? Right, okay. Well, that's pretty, uh, yeah, that's pretty good. That's uh, that kind of, um, it taps right into the same sort of theme that I'm looking at with the idea of community groups here. I originally was thinking about um, pushing the whole idea of reducing your carbon footprint by using carbon rationing. 
but the idea of carbon rationing on a voluntary basis it really doesn't work so uh and people think that it's got much more to do with money and about people making profit and offsets and stuff like that than it actually does so i'm thinking more but so you get your community group and you get them to start recording their carbon footprint mm -hmm. and um or or you know you can give them a ration and see how quickly they see how slowly they can they prevent it getting down to zero um but yeah they have uh, a community would have a lot more say and a lot more influence when they talk to local politicians mm -hmm. and local corporations and businesses so yeah that that sounds that sounds like a, a major way forward and with 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 people though on a personal level i was thinking that you might be saying yeah people are now beginning to see the effects of climate change in terms of whatever it is with their local with their local river with local wildlife with 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 trees or or with harvests whatever i don't know whether you've got that much more in in um northeast usa um or not you've um, america is such a america's got it really bad for climate change i keep i keep having to remind myself how lucky i am living in england yeah which is really just sort of mostly rainy bad weather and the occasional burst of sunshine and what we call a heat wave is something that you would just go that's a heat wave no right right but in and america it, you've got your west yeah. coast is burning up your 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 south coast is getting blown apart by hurricanes and you had a hurricane come up the east coast as well a couple of years back yeah was that, was that sandy or was that the place where it landed uh sandy sandy hurricane sandy yep and it's I, you know, one of the challenges I think we have in, the, in America is that we are such a large country. We reach so many um, different types of ecosystems. Um, it's really easy for somebody living where I live to not really feel the effects that somebody in this, the Southeast is feeling or the Southwest is feeling. Um, we can see this stuff intellectually on the news, but until you have a lived experience, it's really hard, or until you are engaging with people who are having those lived experiences, it's really hard to, to put yourself in their shoes. And so one of the strengths, I think, of, of Noki has been that it's a national network of people who are engaging with this work of climate change interpretation throughout the country. And the challenges they face are pretty diverse. And some of these institutions, some institutions have a policy of we cannot use the words climate change. We cannot, cannot directly head on voice any, anything about climate change because it's so politically charged. Wow. Um, so we have to be strategic about how we have those conversations. Um, right. New England Aquarium was, is, is pretty um, bold in that sense of being able to, you know, they're, they're willing to, put a stake in the ground saying we have to make a stand because this is the, the, the this is the main issue of our generations um, and it's so, so so engaging with people across the country have been it's been really valuable to understand how better to access individuals but I also think that I the, there's a consistency through no matter where you're from of how do you engage a human is by connecting with them as a human. Um, one of my favorite. Yeah. No, go on. Your favorite what? 
Oh, one of my favorite experiences of engaging somebody who was a bit of a naysayer um, was actually in your neck of the woods. Um, I was in Ireland and I, um, I had a, a friend who was working at the Dingle uh, Seal Sanctuary. And it was shortly after some seals had been decapitated and their heads had been nailed to the sign. And um, there, was a, there was a lot of animosity against seals in the in the region and uh, i went i was visiting my friend and um it's a small operation uh and and they rescue imperiled seals and try to bring them back to health and return them to the wild okay sorry sorry hold on a lot of people a lot of people won't know why anybody would want to decapitate a seal i mean i can guess but you yes. have to say oh yes and well that and actually that's going to get to um i'm going to get there with the response we had from somebody from the public while I was there, I was sitting with my friend at the front desk and this, the sanctuary, it's both a sanctuary and public can pay money to come in and, and see the seals and see some, some rescued um, um, birds. And this family came in and uh, the kids were super excited and the matriarch of the family came up and she in colorful language expressed what the heck am I going to be paying money to see here and my friend's like oh yeah you know we rescued these seals and blah blah, blah and we're gonna return them to the wild and she's like i don't know why i want to pay money for this i'd rather shoot them and then she plopped her money down because her kids her grandkids wanted to go in and then she went in <laughs> and my my, no, my, my friend was not very well uh she hadn't had a ton of experience um in those situations and there was only one other person working there at the time who was back with the seals who was quite young and uh, also inexperienced. So I was like, all right, maybe, maybe some backup would be useful. And I went back and I, I just started milling around the sanctuary and I found, found this woman and I just started a conversation with her. And I asked her, hey, I gotta ask, you know, why, why do you wanna shoot the seals? And she's like, well, I'm a fisherman and they eat, they eat all my fish and they destroy all my shrimp pots. And that's one of the big issues for, for the fishing community is they see seals as competition. They see seals as destructive forces in the environment. And I, and so the way I engaged her was kind of harking back to what I was previously saying. I tried to meet her where she was in that recognizing she had some of the valid concerns, her livelihood. She yeah. saw seals as a threat to her livelihood. And so I, I highlighted, you know what, um, the shrimp pots thing sucks. I honestly don't have an answer for that. We clearly need to work with some, some pot makers who can make better pots or make some sort of system that is a little bit more seal proof because we always have to deal with those elements in, the, in nature and yeah. that's something I can't help with, that sucks. With the fishing piece or the fish piece of it, Seals are, are predators and you know, like they go for the sick and the weak. So they actually make, they thin out the, the, the less valuable fish, make it so that the fish that you catch are more valuable and they actually make the whole population more healthy so that you will have a livelihood tomorrow too. And she, I was, I was dumbfounded that I found the words um, in an <laughs> eloquent yeah, way. Well that she responded with, huh, crap, I guess that makes sense. And, and so like I, 
and we had, and then we just had a little, we, we chit chatted for a little while. And I just, yeah, I was, I was, I was pretty struck that here was this person who came in with pretty much ready for fisticuffs. And we had a human conversation. We had a conversation that recognized that she has valid concerns. And I think that's where I really want us to focus is, um, yeah, totally. I mean, they are valid the concerns. We in the choir, we know that there's some big, big issues, but those who may not already be on board with environmental issues, there is a value in understanding what their true concerns are. If you can talk to them as a human, you might actually get to a, a better spot. You know, that's totally, that's totally true with the, I mean, if, if I'd been there, I would have gone, yeah, you're right. You know, I, those seals, damn those seals they're taking your fish i would yeah. have been because it's okay i've never i've never got out on a fishing boat and tried to pull in a catch of fish but i can imagine you watch david attenborough and all those sea lions and stuff and they're just chomping down on those fish yeah they are, i don't think those fish stand a chance are you sure about that thing with just the sick in the week or is yeah. that just like are you spinning it are you spinning no. it? so think about um so seals within the the natural setting. If there, if you have a seal, if you put fish into a pen, they're already disadvantaged. But if a seal goes, any predator goes after prey that is in full fighting shape, they could get injured. Just even if, uh, I mean, a lot of fish have spines, even a small fish. And if you, you could be a, a pretty beefy seal, but if this fish thrashed in the wrong way and poked your eye, that I could get infected and that could ultimately be your demise. Right. I don't, I'm not suggesting that seals are thinking that through, but over time evolution has really taught predators to go for the, the prey that is going to be the least likely to damage mm -hmm. them. And right. Okay. So if you, if you put fish in a compromised position, i.e. in a net, yeah. they are already weak. Yeah. Um, they're easier prey. I mean, so salmon fishing, uh, not salmon fishing, I mean, salmon farming, where they're all in a net. If a yeah. seal or a, or a sea otter or something gets in there, then that's going to be carnage, right? Yeah, pretty much. And so that's a matter of making sure, sorry, I just have to move rooms real quickly. Um, that's a matter of ensuring, you know, that's where best practices can, can, can make a pretty big impact. So if you can change, maybe it change, you, you have to change how you, how often you pull on your nets. Maybe you change, is there a design that can reduce the likelihood that seals can get into a fishing pen, um, uh, a fish farm pen? Um, I, I, I always think about, there was, there was an incredible example of collaboration between managers and fishermen in Canada on the West Coast years ago, they were having some pretty significant issues of seabirds, um, you know, albertos who are endangered, who yeah. while fishermen were pulling in long lines, these long lines, they, they're pretty deep in the water. But as you pull them up to the boat, they ultimately get close towards the surface. And once they're within, you know, a dozen, a couple dozen feet or even more, a couple dozen meters even, um, they are, uh, seabirds will dive down, take the fish right off the hook. And some of those birds get hooked themselves and drown and die. And 
um, because yeah. they are endangered, a fishing operation could be shut down if they ca catch too many of them. The albatross. So, yeah. Albatross, um, there's, I mean, there's a whole slew of seabirds that would get caught by this, but some of it would be albatross who were endangered and um, right. are endangered. Um, and they, so, so they came up with a solution of, fishermen su suggested, what if we just strung a streamer, like a silly string that's, that waves over the water for a hundred feet behind the boat? Will that deter them? And it was a incredibly cheap solution that reduced bycatch by 97%. And it was, it was effective. I mean, wow. because they recognized at their fishermen, they, they're, they're living in it and they looked around and they're like, well, the, the birds are only diving down when the net when the hooks are within a certain distance behind my boat. So what if we can make a distraction that the birds don't want to fly through yeah. that extends that far behind the boat. So I think I say that to, 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 to re revisit the idea that the more we can engage with people who are living these experiences and, and it'd be so easy for, for managers to come in and say, no, you're going to have to do this um, our way. Right. And the fishermen are going to do everything they can to fight that because when somebody comes into your home and tells you how to live, that's a hard thing for anybody to take. Um, right. so, and I think that that extends to climate change. If we can, we need to engage the entire community with honest dialogue that can result in true solutions. So how does the, how does not, um, Noki, get to the entire community. How do you get people to overcome their, well, their desire just to sit on the sofa and watch Netflix instead? Yeah. We have the advantage that a, a huge number of people come to zoos and aquariums um, in our country and throughout the world. Um, they, you know, it, it's a, kids are a, a, an amazing access point. And so, it is an activity that a lot of people will come and seek us out for. And so while we have them in our audience, we can engage with them. Um, that's not getting to everybody. Okay. One part of our goal, um, part of my goal with, with educational programs has always been great. I'm teaching you, but I want you to teach others. I want you to go out and share with your friends. Are, are there things that we can, get you so excited about that you start building a, a group at school who is going to work to reduce single use plastic within your school. Like, can you get your school board on board with that? Well, that's going to require you engaging with friends and even getting different stakeholders involved. Like maybe you have to talk to the, the cafeteria staff. How do you, you know, how do you engage with them? So it can be a, this holistic learning experience for students. It can be a holistic experience for adults too. And they do that. And the people who are inspired to do that are inspired by, basically inspired by nature. They just want to protect whatever it is that, that they've been, that they've been introduced to that they realize is in danger. It can and be. They, they think they can do something about that. And that is the inspiration that they, that carries them through to actually take some action on it, right. bring some people together, go out and start motivating others to uh, adopt changes that is going to have some sort of impact. Right. And one, one thing that's really important about 
our approach is we stress that it needs to not be crisis framed. Um, we have a, we, we don't want to sugarcoat. We have a very real concern about how we are operating as a, as a global community um, in terms of, of our impacts on climate change. But right. if you go at it and say the sky is falling, people are going to say, well, I got to find a cave to duck into. Um, <laughs> it's not going to be, well, how do I prop up that sky? Um, and so it's, Okay, so I use the words in danger. Yeah. Presumably that's what you picked up on. A little bit, yeah. So what else do you say? I mean, you want to protect it? So they yeah, want to protect, want to protect it. it. It's protection, okay. Yeah, protection is one of those values that is actually, um, it permeates all walks of life, at least in the US. And our indications are that that value extends throughout much of the world. We haven't done studies through in every country, but um, there's a lot of indication that the idea of protection, again, what you are protecting is, you know, not everybody's going to care about that coral, but you're going to care about your family. You're going to protect your family. You're going to protect your community. You're going to protect your, right. your country. Um, that can be really motivating. And so I like to see this all as these are opportunities mm -hmm. to engage with really cool new ways to interact with our world and potentially amazing business opportunities and i think as you frame it as this is an opportunity this is something i'm excited for rather than oh god we just gotta we just gotta dodge this this bullet how do we dodge this yeah. bullet that plain defense is is not fun <laughs> yeah right yeah i can uh, i can see that definitely the um the name uh, no, the is the National Network for Climate Change. What was the I? Oh, it's it's National Network for Ocean and Climate Change Interpretation. Interpretation. Yeah. Right. Okay. So we're trying to interpret. Um, it 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 is a. We are recognizing that while we live and breathe science and education and, and environmental issues, that is not forefront of every human's mind. Um, and so our job in an aquarium is we are interpreting what it is you're seeing. You're seeing this beautiful coral reef. Oh, we're going to convey to you the community that is within that coral reef. We're going to convey to you the challenges, challenges it faces, the different components of it that it faces, and also the challenges we face as yeah. a presenter of this ecosystem, um, we try not to we not, try not to dance around the issue that um, it is there is a discomfort for a lot of people of having animals in a in an artificial environment, um, and there's a pretty robust conversation of whether that's a valuable thing. Um, but I will say that you can, if you interpret it right, if, and if you treat these animals well and show that we're being responsible for them, and this is just a microcosm of how we can be responsible for our, our entire world, it creates that causal chain or that helps create the causal chain to understand how we can be helpful to the, the world at large. Right. I think the, um, 
um, I think coral, I don't think anybody could object to having coral in an aquarium because coral, they're just like microscopic. Well, no, they're not quite microscopic. They're, they're tiny, teeny, tiny little polyps. Again, but, yeah. um, I presume you're talking about seals and otters and fish. Big fish. Yeah, um, that's usually where the maybe. conversation kind of gets sticky. Yeah. Um, and there's, there are, there are some people who would, who would advocate for even um, invertebrates who are often not the center of concern for a lot of uh, animal rights groups. Um, sure. They, they deserve to be cared for and the most, treated with respect. And I think yeah, most of the concern is, is around charismatic megafauna, seals, dolphins, things like that. Um, and what we really stress is that it is about being responsible about how we care for these animals. If we, we, sh we should not be having certain species in a small tank. Um, there's other species that actually do better in a small tank because they um, naturally live in caves and really don't move more than a couple meters in a lifetime after they've found a home. Right. So it's, but it's, the, that's an incredible opportunity for a conversation to understand there's a lot of weird nuance throughout the world. Let's create, let's interpret that, that nuance. Uh-huh. Yeah, I can see that the, um, that the megafauna, there's, there's two conversations there, aren't there? You've got the, uh, You've got these things like turtles, and um, I assume that you can have. I assume that you can have kids looking at uh, all sorts of different animals, but as soon as you get the big ones like the dolphins and so on, and even the even the little kids will start going. Well, it's not right that they should live in a little tank. Right. But the and that's um, and that's an I love that conversation with kids because even if it puts me in a hot seat, it's. It's a real conversation, and it's something that needs to be discussed. And I yeah. think there's a lot of opportunity there. Right. So, okay. The uh, at the New England Aquarium where you worked, did they have? Did so? What was the largest animal that they had there? Largest animal was Myrtle the sea turtle. She's a green green sea turtle. She was um, she was actually rescued. Um, years and years and years and years ago and has been in aquariums for well she was there since we started in 1969. It's time for my baby's snack so he's, okay. he's a little chatty. <laughs> <laughs> okay so, so what um, I'm saying is you don't have you didn't have dolphins there or uh... we used to we used to have dolphins um, and there was a recognition in the 90s that the setup we had for them was not quite appropriate. And so we made a, a conscious decision to, um, I say we, I was not there at the time, um, but I applaud their approach of, we wanted to make sure that what we have is there, it, it, we're being responsible about it. Um, we also have fur seals and harbor seals and sea lions. And one of the best measures for is a uh, is this animal who is in an aquarium or in a zoo? Are they being cared for well? Is is their lifespan this similar to what it would be in the wild? Um, because stress kills. 
if an animal is stressed out, they do not survive as long. And um, so we've been pretty happy that uh, most, our, our average lifespan for these large mammals has been longer than it would be in the wild. Um, and that's a really strong indicator that they're being well cared for, they're, they're healthy, they're healthy weights, they are not, um, they're not stressed. And that's, okay. but they also create this amazing opportunity to, to, cr to form that love of the ocean. You, you watch a sea lion for a little while and you're, it's hard not to just kind of have your heart melt just a little bit even. Um, they're big as well. They had one in uh, a wildlife, a wildlife park outside London. I didn't mm -hmm. realize how big they were. Yeah, some species can get huge. Um, <laughs> we don't have the super big ones, but we have, they're, they're pretty decent size. There might actually be one or two that might be bigger than Merle right now. But it's bigger than a big dog. I was, so I was walking along and there was just, there was a big uh, sort of shoulder level, shoulder yeah. level um, wall between me and the aquarium. Yeah. And the sea lion shot out of the water and landed on the little, on the little patch of, of concrete on the other side of the wall. It was a glass wall and it was like big. It was like bigger than me. I, it definitely weighed more than me, a lot more than me. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. They can get quite as tall. They can get hundreds of kilos. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, was, I was slightly shocked. I think, I think I like to think that they do that on, on purpose. Sometimes I do find that the animals engage with humans and I, and I argue that that is a strong sign that if they are, if they're engaging with people walking by and they're doing yeah. so in a relaxed way, that is a sign that they are not stressed and they're not scared. Uh -huh. And that, that's a positive thing. Um, yeah. You know, it's yeah. these, it's these big animals and uh, the stories, conservation stories, success stories about these big animals and whales as well, in particular, that I was thinking of that, that really inspire me to be a bit more positive when I'm, when I'm reading all of the dire headlines about global, global warming and climate change, I think there's still reason for, for being positive about it and thinking that humanity is going to pull the cat out of the bag, as it were, yeah. pull the rabbit out of the hat. Because there's, look at tigers, the tiger numbers have increased. Look at uh, the, this, this threatened population of, I think it's right whales. Mm -hmm. in the St. Lawrence Gulf and or, or is it St. Lawrence Gulf or the or the basically the the between the USA and Canada there on the right. east coast right I saw a popular uh, saw a documentary about the population of whales there and they were just being they had a history of of essentially roadkill from the yep. too many of them were just falling victim to big vessels going past and ramming them just without even realizing and that's one of the challenges of, I mean, that actually brings back to climate change. Uh, there's, we, the New England Aquarium has been one of the foremost research organizations that have been studying the North Atlantic right whale population for decades. Uh -huh. And we, um, they, they, there were a lot of issues with ship strikes. Um, and Ship strikes, that's the word. Yeah, yeah. So big tankers that, you know, as you're, um, if you, right whales were, are called right whales because they hang out, they're the right whale to hunt. They, they hang out at the top of the ocean. It's, they just sit there. They don't move around very quickly. And when they die, they float. And so it was really easy for whalers to get to them. 
Um, so they're hanging <laughs> out of the top of the ocean, and they, you know, you would think if a big ship is coming at you, you're going to hear it and you're going to move aside. Yeah. But the quiet, if, if you're on a big ship, the quietest spot in the ocean around you is actually in front of the boat because gotcha. the prop is making all the sound and the prop yeah. is directly behind the boat. So the whole of the ship creates this, this, this dead zone of sound in directly in front. Right. The ship hits it. Or, and then so the, the whale just hangs out there and then the ship hits it and that's not good. So, so what do they do? They did um, actually through a one, it was a, a super simple solution, um, at least for the time being. They did an, an analysis of where the right whales were spending their time and where the shipping lanes were. And they found that if you just moved the shipping lanes over by a, a few nautical miles, you could reduce ship strikes by somewhere in the order of 80 to 90%. And the way that it we went about getting that change done, it got industry on board. It only increased their the, the transit time for the ships by a nominal amount. So it was not a significant issue for them and the the shipping lanes got moved and ship strikes went down tremendously however there's other issues that they run into they get they get caught up in lobster line lobster pot yeah, line that, that was the one that i was thinking of david yeah been busy inventing part. new types of lobster new yeah types of and lobster that's lines, that's right? expensive. and that's hard to figure out but we're working that's that's something that's going to take a lot of innovation but then then you bring in climate change that um we recently started having a hard time finding our our population of right whales, which are the most critically endangered uh, species of, of of right whale, at least um, population of right whale. And there's only I forget the exact number, but it's it's I think it's under 400 individuals now. Um, right. And they um, we weren't finding them in their traditional summer grounds and we they have be... now they have now moved further north presumably in response to the the warming of the gulf of maine it's one of the warm fastest warming bodies of water in the world all right and so they've moved further up into canada and so then there was an uptick of ship strikes because those oh. those changes of shipping lanes had not not been able to account for this change of where the right whales spend their time right and so there's, Damn. there's a lot of work that needs to be done there. Um, and then, you know, that, that's where innovation can come in. Yeah. Um, innovation is huge. Awareness is huge. If you forget about these animals, it's really hard to do anything about it. Um, but I also, they can be a poster child for the impacts of climate change that might impact all of us in ways that we don't really recognize. And trying to make sure that while we're talking about these really pretty animals or really amazing animals, we can tie that back into how is that impacting humans? And as we think about, okay, that Gulf of Maine is warming really, really quickly. Oh, right. The Gulf of Maine is one of the most productive areas in U.S. waters um, for, in terms of, of what we can take out of the ocean for our own consumption. Well, That's going to have a massive impact on our local economy. Yeah. And, global, and global economy.
What's the city in Maine? Is that is that where Boston sits? No, Boston is in Massachusetts. Um, uh, Portland is the largest city in Maine. Okay. Um, Maine is a relatively rural uh, state, so there's uh, Portland is not a huge city. It's it's yeah. actually quite a lovely city. I love it. Um, but uh, I do it. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so it's so there are really great opportunities to to use these beautiful animals to inspire people um, but I also don't I think there is sometimes we we focus on these charismatic animals at our own peril um, there's I actually found some great traction when talking to visitors to the aquarium when talking about our jellyfish uh -huh. um, jellies are a very simplistic animal uh, and they are uh, not I mean they're not threatened uh, there are uh, they're doing they actually, really well right they're, they're doing, doing really, really well, well. They, they do well um, with warming waters they do well in low oxygen situations so as yeah. we um, are you familiar with dead zones yeah Mississippi yeah. Delta right yeah so that's a big issue with with eutrophication with too much runoff that um, fertilizes the ocean, makes phytoplankton build up, zooplankton eats that real fast, and then they die faster than they can be eaten by their predators. And then they, they've sucked up all the oxygen, suck down and sink down after they die, and all of the area has no more oxygen. So jellies move in because they can survive in low oxygen situations. Right. But there's a jelly that um, called the upside down jelly or uh, Cassiopeia um, is their genus name. Uh -huh. Uh, I hope I don't get quoted on that one. And <laughs> <laughs> I should know that one. Um, but they are a jelly that actually has zooxanthellic algae that lives inside, which is the algae that lives inside of coral that gives coral its color. So coral is a an animal that that hard coral forms that shell and yeah. has and lives inside the shell. But inside their body, they have this algae that photosynthesizes the, the light from the from the sun and turns that into energy that the jelly or then the that the coral then gets to consume and gets a lot of their sustenance that way. Oh right. Uh, so so this is an animal that's got a that's got plants living inside it yes. that can absorb sunlight to make energy. And then yes. the plants share that with the with the animal. Right. Okay. Right. So they, they have a garden inside them. And uh -huh. And, and and so Cassiopeia, the upside down jelly, does that just as coral does that. Um, but yet these, these jellies can be, their systems can be more susceptible to uh, minute changes in the setup, um, in temperature, in pH. Um, one of the big issues of climate change is ocean acidification. And right. we're seeing our ocean become more and more acidic and that's yeah, you corrected my article there i, I, went down, <laughs> I put something in there about that perfect uh -huh. um and that stress can can result in the um so it's, so it's just it's you've got animal life there too huh i don't do, worry about it it's all right you don't have to. <laughs> the wild animal that um is that someone at the door <laughs> okay it's normally a sign there's someone at the door Oh, no, in this case, it's a sign that his arch 
nemesis who lives across the street is out for a walk. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good one. So basically, so going back to these upside down jellyfish that have yeah. got um, plants photosynthesizing inside them, correct me if my A-level biology is wrong, but that means that the, the plants are absorbing CO2 to photosynthesize and that's how they can survive in this dead zone? No, not necessarily. Um, the, oh, most okay. jellies don't have zooxanthellic algae and most jellies are more um, resilient to changes in acidity um, than fish are or than um, some mollusks, some things with shells. Um, they're the, more or less susceptible to it. They're less susceptible. So and right, right, they're okay, particularly less susceptible to dead zones. So they can right. deal with low oxygen situations. The, when you introduce the garden inside of a jelly, um, as any gardener can tell you, as you change pH or any number of nutrients can make it so that your potatoes don't grow or whatever doesn't grow the way it ought to or it could. And so if you change... Uh -huh. I know that. <laughs> when, when you introduce a, a variety of life forms in a, in, a, in a system, I think you also introduce an opportunity for more things to go wrong. Uh, and so while the jelly itself might be okay with low oxygen, um, the, they actually are in many ways, the Cassiopeia do well because the the algae produces oxygen and they can they can they can use that but the the algae may be and i don't know all of the details for the algae that lives within cassiopeia but the algae could be more affected by changes in the environment and um what i do know is that coral has similar algae inside them and when when things get acidic they spit that coral out or when things get I mean, they, they spit that algae out. Um, right. when, when things get too warm, they, they say, oh, the, the world is ending. I'm going to not focus on having um, housing a good situation for this algae. I'm going to focus on myself for the moment. Okay. And um, it can be a defense mechanism for the short term. But as, if conditions continue, they don't have the algae repopulate. Yeah, yeah. I always, I used I've always read those stories about how the uh, all these articles about the corals bleaching must mm -hmm. be the same with the jellyfish, and I'm like, why do they lose their algae? Don't yeah. just don't yeah. let them go, for God's sake! It's really right, <laughs> right. And and I'm not saying that the cor uh, that the jellies necessarily lose their algae. Um, I I actually don't know how much they shoot them out <laughs> if if they if they don't do well with that. But it, I I kind of I use those the tanks with those um, jellies in it to indicate how complex these systems can be and how sensitive they can be to changes. Right. And then I can translate that over to coral. Um, uh -huh. When we have coral in an exhibit, that's an even easier um, um, discussion. Uh, the jellyfish and, exhibits that I've seen have always been really quite simple, but they're always really, they're much, much more interesting. I find them much, much more interesting, not intellectually, but just like in a kind of way that makes me stand and stare. Yes. I find uh, them, I don't know why, I find them just hypnotizing almost. You'll find them a lot in restaurants and casinos because they really, yeah, they hypnotize you and make you spend more money. 
<laughs> they are. I've never realized. I mean, there's such there's such a simplicity to them. I was actually one of my first gigs at the at the New England Aquarium was I like to call it as a jelly wet nurse. I raised baby jellies, uh-huh. and I was, uh, and they were just they're really hard to raise um, from from polyps. Um, they're very susceptible to 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 a variety of things, and so. The New England Aquarium is one of the places that has figured out how to do it the best, uh-huh. but it is complex and it, it and there's a lot of opportunities for it to go wrong. But when you have an exhibit with them in it, yeah. it's so beautiful. Yeah. Maybe that's why you get all these people going on their first date there. Uh, that's a big part of it. Come on, watch the jellyfish. The other part what is, I'm doing. Um, <laughs> we actually have our harbor seals are uh, on display um outside of our paywall so you can see the harbor seals before you ever pay for the aquarium right which means um it is a common place for people to go after they've had dinner even if the aquarium is closed they can go and take a look at the the harbor seals and um okay and sometimes uh i've had people tell me i've had one person in particular tell me uh yeah it's 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 such a great move you you take a lady over to the harbor seals and you just watch them. You can put your arm around her and she's just like, oh, they're so beautiful. And just, it just makes sure the conversation just stays in a good spot. <laughs> Fantastic. <Awesome. laughs> okay, good one. Look, um, it's coming up to the hour almost that I, since I hit the record button. So uh, shall we start to wrap it up? I think we've hit most of the main points there that I wanted to cover, definitely. I've now worked. I've now worked out how to say NOCI. Uh, so it's the it, it's the National Network of Ocean and Climate Change Interpretation. Yes, yes. Fantastic. And one of the key parts of there is is NOCI really focuses does a lot of work on the ocean. The ocean is the heart of our of our climate. It it uh-huh. moves um, um, energy around our planet just like our heart moves our blood right. our our bodies, but um, there's a big, we have to work really hard on how do you connect people in the middle of a country who don't have direct access to the ocean? How do you connect them in a way that is meaningful to the health of the ocean? And the, the, the issue with climate change is it's yeah. impacting the ocean so tremendously and by impacting the ocean, it impacts us. It is, yeah. It's the, uh, there's, there's that, little, um, that little thing that's been doing the rounds on, the, on social media is, uh, is that the oceans have been taking up so much of the of the energy that's been trapped by the greenhouse gases. It's equivalent to five Hiroshima atom bombs being dropped in the oceans every second. Yes. It's just a phenomenal figure. It just does not just, how do you, how do you reckon that? It's just incredible. Right. And, and um, that's going to be, it's a, it's a reckoning we're running into. Yeah. But I mean, thank God for that though. Otherwise oh, yeah, we'd, have, absolutely. we'd have toasted us. We would have toasted the planet two oh, yeah. decades ago. If oh, it yeah. hasn't been for the oceans. Oh yeah, and so without that, uh, the ocean is, is an incredible buffer. The, the concern though is also it's holding all this heat, this energy inside it yeah. that um, it, when you, I, I kind of think of it a little bit like a lobster in a boiling pot or a slowly boiling pot. Um, the lobster doesn't notice it. If, if you throw a crab or a lobster in a pot of water and then make it boil, 
it gets hotter and hotter and they don't necessarily notice that it's getting too hot um, is one story. And I'm not saying you should do that, uh, but uh, <laughs> rather not cool. That's your, but, non, that's your non-vegan story. Uh, truth. <laughs> but I worry that the buffer that the ocean provides also allows us to be a little bit ignorant of the severity of the challenge we're facing. Oh yeah, sure, it's massive complacency. Right, and we need to be very conscious of the impacts of all that energy going into the ocean. How does that play out? Yeah. It plays out in changing um, ocean circulation, which change and and ocean heat, which impacts all those storms yeah. and the, the the frequency and potential severity of those storms, as you mentioned. Um, the where our weather goes, you know, yeah. things. Um, it's, it's really not just global warming; it's global weirding. Things are yeah. getting weirded out all over the place, and so yeah. we're not being able to be consistent. We're not being able to be. Um, um, yeah, be I know what you mean. It, it's the the on. oceans are just are the oceans are for me are just something fantastic, and uh, so I've been to the sea and everything. But but my right. kids who are ten and eight. They get to go to the sea during the summer or maybe a weekends and right. they certainly don't see very much of it uh in comparison with what i'd like and right so how do you engage them you know i recently bought a big screen tv so that we can play all these david attenborough uh, yeah. documentaries the blue blue planet and so on yeah. and so you have you have a big screen with rolling waves and the la yeah. loud sound and and that is such an immersive experience it's yep almost as good as actually going there well okay and then you go Second. then you go out to just the nearby forest and challenge them to find something that can connect the ocean to that forest so what they saw with david attenborough how, how does that connect to the forest and that can be a tall order but through that challenge you end up find, figuring out how it is all connected wow. um, one of the things i always harp on is salmon in the pacific northwest out near seattle area okay um, there's but like, that, that, okay, that's an easy one. Yeah. But what, what age kids were you talking about then? Are you talking about teenagers? Or are you talking about, um, juniors? I've had, I've had sixth grader or six year olds who can, yeah. I can take them out to the, to the forest and we start looking at things that are wet. Where's okay. that wet coming from? Ah, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. And so that, you know, you can, you can, you can, if you work hard enough, you can figure out how it is all connected um, and 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 you know the, and I like to focus on these this plant is is accustomed to a certain way of life and it if I had just mentioned a couple seconds ago that we can't predict what's going to happen yes we are predict we are able to understand a lot of what's going to happen mm -hmm. but there's as anybody in business can tell you, under, having having some reliability in a system makes making decisions a whole lot easier. And that's very true in, in biology as well. Right. And so if this plant relies on our climate to be a certain way, if we change things, if, if the ocean doesn't bring as much water as this plant is used to, or if evaporation from the ocean is happening too much and it's bringing uh, way too much or it's going to change the 
the temperature yeah. regime, this plant may not be able to sit, stick around. And yeah. that deer over there that eats this plant may not stick around. It's uh, all interdependent. It is. Although that's yeah. a pretty big word for an eight-year-old. It is, but <laughs> so it's connected. It's, it's all connected. connected. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I mean, and, and you can even bring it to home. Like, um, yeah. if we, I don't know, you, you don't flush the toilet, it stinks up the whole house. That's definitely an easy connection to make. <laughs> I just came up with that. So I don't know if that's going to hold up. Um, <laughs> are, you, are you on nappy duty this afternoon with your, with your uh, one-year-old, are you? That's where that thought Yeah, came. I am. <laughs> Good one. Yeah. Okay, Danny, look, thank you very much for being my guest today. My um, pleasure. Let's wrap it up there. And uh, it's all been fascinating stuff. So um, I hope that everybody who's listening will tune into the next one. Absolutely. Uh, and I, I want to do a quick plug for anybody who wants to join in on these sustainability conversations, either with London Green Drinks or Boston Green Drinks or um, Green Drinks is an international group that um, meets and it's just people who care about sustainability ideas yep. and has great conversations and they're they are everywhere so you can probably find one in your town but a lot of them are um or you can start one yourself yeah, but a exactly. lot of them just put london green drinks into your search engine and it will come yep. up with it will actually come up with two so you've got to be careful to choose the right one if there's a canadian yeah. london and a uk london green oh, drink. interesting and there's also a lot of a lot of us are going online now, so you can access it from yeah. anywhere. So that's something I, I think, encouraging these conversations, encouraging the sharing of ideas. Let's keep it going. Fantastic. Okay, thank you very much. And um, have a great day. You too. Have a great day, everybody, everybody listening. So bye. Take care. This is the Carbon Watchdog podcast. All of the website content and uh, the podcasts are free. If you like what Carbon Watchdog is doing, then please head over to patreon.com using the link on the website and support me there. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you'll tune into the next one. Bye.